Broadcasting from Purple Earth. There is recyclables that are being thrown away every day. I'm afraid that you have rather a weak grasp of reality. Your reality, sir, is lies and balderdash. And I'm delighted to say that I have no grasp of it whatsoever. This week on A Different Reality, it's Earth Day. How did all of this Earth Day business get started anyway, and why? Does it mean something more than a community garbage pickup day? After all the rallies and speeches are over with, what can we each do to make a meaningful difference? We'll also have a conversation with Ken Malley, a professor of philosophy who teaches sustainability as part of an environmental studies program at the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse. Our Earth Day show is this week on A Different Reality. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, and welcome to A Different Reality. My name is Abby Z. And I'm Rosie. This is A Different Reality number 504, Earth Day, recorded for release on Friday, April 22nd, 2005. One and two-thirds of an inch of rain this week. Everything is turning green. You know, just a month ago, we had one and two-thirds inches of rain, but it froze before it got to the ground, and what we wound up with was 14 inches of snow instead. I'm glad it wasn't that. The crabapple tree in our neighbor's yard is turning red, and our neighbors on the other side have dark purple lilacs starting to bud. The smell of lilacs is in the air for the next few weeks. Mmm. And as soon as this show is in the can, I need to pick rhubarb. Mmm, rhubarb. Now, the word of the week for this week is... Cardinals. News reports about a conclave at the Vatican where all the cardinals are gathering to choose a new pope. Actually, they just gathered and they chose a new pope. But when they were talking about 150 cardinals gathering in the Sistine Chapel, we started to envision a scene that sounds something like this. Can you turn the birds down? Where we live, we see cardinals all the time. They're bright red birds who don't mind living in the city as long as they have plenty of food and trees around, and they have this lovely song. Before Rosie and I met each other, I used to sit by the open window of my apartment and mimic the cardinals hanging out in nearby trees. I got pretty good at it. While I was growing up, I walked to school, and I'd hear the cardinals in the trees, and I started answering them back. So not long after we met, we got into the habit of doing cardinal calls to find each other if we'd split up someplace. For instance, at the food co-op, we'd split up to round up our groceries and then use our cardinal calls to find each other when we were done. Then one night we happened to be watching some nature show about bird calls and what the natural purpose is for the songs that the birds sing. We actually heard a line that went something like this. The cardinals sing their song to maintain contact while foraging for food. With all this talk about cardinals, it got us wondering, what came first? The Catholic super bishops that wear all those red robes or the bright red bird? To find out, we checked the internet. The first thing we found was an etymology site called Take Our Word For It at takeourword.com. 
cardinal derives from Latin cardo, hinge, so that something cardinal is important because all else hinges upon it. Therefore, a cardinal rule is a fundamental rule. A cardinal direction is one of the principal directions, north, south, east, or west. So what about the guys in red? Originally, a cardinal was a clergyman, the word deriving from Latin cardinalis, clergyman. The idea was that a clergyman attached to the church, much as a door is attached to a building by hinges. The word gradually shifted so that it applied only to the princes of the Roman Catholic Church, the cardinals. The word cardinal as an ecclesiastical prince dates back to 1125. Cardinal the adjective dates from 1300, principally in the phrase cardinal virtues. By 1440, it was being used as a general term to refer to anything fundamental. As far as the red birds are concerned, it appears that the cardinals we know are indigenous to North America. The word for the guys in red robes has been around since about the 12th century. Europeans didn't arrive in North America until four centuries later. Whoever first saw the red birds probably thought about the guys in red robes who picked the Pope, and the birds were called cardinals. Short answer to our question? The birds were named after the bishops, not the other way around. One other thing, while we were doing research on this story, we learned that at one time, cardinals were captured and brought to Europe as songbirds, just as lovebirds and other parrots were more recently. So we ask our international listeners, those from outside North America, have you ever seen a cardinal in your part of the world? Please go to our website at www.purpleearth.net Click on Contact Purple Earth and let us know. We're really curious about this, and we appreciate your response. We'd like to make an acknowledgement to enature.com, which was the source of many of the cardinal sounds that we used, except for from our own lips. Down to the ground 
As Jim Morrison and the Doors fade away, Abby will tell some Earth Day stories. History of Earth Day. Well, you can't talk about the history of Earth Day without talking about a guy named Gaylord Nelson. He was born in 1916 in northwestern Wisconsin, up in an area that we like to call the North Woods. When he was about eight years old, his dad took him to a whistle-stop appearance of Fighting Bob LaFollette. And then he dreamed that one day he, too, might become a United States senator. He went to school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, graduated from the UW Law School in 1942. Like most American men his age at the time, he went off to war, and he got married right away after the war ended. He got elected to the state Senate in 1948, and he was elected Wisconsin governor 10 years later. In 1962, the people of Wisconsin elected Gaylord Nelson to represent them in the United States Senate, and he went on to serve three six-year terms. Now, it wasn't long after he took office that, in many areas of the country, the environmental picture was pretty bleak. People were literally choking on the air in some inner cities. There were rivers that were so polluted with petroleum products that they would catch fire. Senator Nelson saw these things happening, and he became a champion for the environment. During the same time, the Vietnam War was escalating, and citizens were organizing in opposition to the war. Senator Nelson noticed the effectiveness of teach-ins that the anti-war movement was using as their outreach and education strategy, and he thought, hey, why not have a national teach-in day for the environment? Once the day was set for Earth Day, April 22, 1970, the idea took off like gangbusters. Earth Day was something that the entire American population seemed to pick up on in the spring of 1970. Twenty million people participated in Earth Day. Funny thing is that at the time, we just thought of it as Earth Day, something that was only supposed to happen once. We never thought we'd be celebrating the anniversary every year for generations. I guess I'm glad we still talk about these things every year. I just wish we didn't have to. Earth Day was in late April of 1970, and by the end of that year, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Environmental Protection Agency all became reality. Gaylord Nelson is now 88 years old, and we don't hear from him much anymore, but he was one of the best senators Wisconsin ever had, and the person who now holds that Senate seat has an important legacy to protect. Even though we have a long way to go, there was a turning point in the public attitude toward the environment in the 60s and early 70s. It's safe to say that if any of this environmental protection legislation could have happened without Gaylord Nelson, it would have happened much later, possibly too late. a parking lot with a pink hotel a boutique and a swinging hot spot don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone they pay paradise put up a parking lot I have memories, I have stories of the first Earth Day. Sit down, my children, and let the old geezer tell you how it was. I was 15 years old. I was in my first year of high school. 
In that year of school, my first class of the day was algebra, and there was an odd collection of students in that class. It wasn't the class that had all the math whizzes. I was in that class in later years. It wasn't the basic math class for the kids that weren't really that much into math. It was this kind of group that was in the middle, and it included people like me who'd just come into the public school system from the Catholic school. So the public school people didn't really know where to put me in the math lineup, so they kind of put me in with, with this group in the middle. But we were kind of a bunch of oddballs in a lot of ways. Our teacher was this young guy in his 20s, and he was really good at making his students comfortable and making his class fun, which was no small feat for ninth grade algebra. The class always started with us chatting with each other for about 10 minutes about the, you know, about whatever, you know, what was on TV last night, you know, what, what, you know, what happened in the Packer game, or, you know, sometimes we'd talk about politics. I mean, it was the first class for all of us, and we just kind of shot the breeze for a few minutes at the beginning of the day. It became a time when we would air our teenage cares and anxieties, and along with the Vietnam War, the environment was something that came up often. On Earth Day, Our first hour algebra class was devoted to the earth, the things we were doing to the environment and what we could do about it. It was this teacher and countless others like him around the country that made Earth Day what it was. seemed to be the year that Earth Day started coming into attention again. It was the 20th anniversary of Earth Day that year. I was 35 years old and I was a member of an intentional community that was promoting communal living as a solution to environmental problems. This community survived by publishing propaganda that we sold on the streets, kind of like an underground newspaper. I was in New York City for a few months in the spring of 1990, selling our subversive literature during the day in Greenwich Village and spending my nights in a borrowed car parked in Brooklyn outside the apartment where one of my comrades was staying with her sister. The sister didn't want riffraff like me staying in her apartment, so I stayed in the car. Anyway, somebody put together this huge rally for Earth Day, a big stage at one end of the Great Lawn in Central Park, and popular bands and famous celebrity speakers and all kinds of rah-rah for the Earth kind of stuff was going on. Literally, a million people showed up to party in the park that day. But one had to wonder that after all the drinking and dancing in the park on a beautiful spring day was over with, how much commitment this crowd had to the environment. I saw more of that commitment the next day, on a Monday on Wall Street. A couple of thousand people showed up for a rally over lunch hour outside the New York Stock Exchange. And this was a crowd that knew where to find the root causes of the problem, long before bashing corporations became fashionable. Each person there was well-read, intelligent, and committed. Many had given up workdays to be there. Others had traveled hundreds of miles and slept on floors to be there. Even though the Sunday crowd outnumbered the Monday crowd by about 500 to 1, I felt that the Monday crowd would account for more meaningful things actually getting done. And they just felt a lot more like my kind of people. Once there were parking lots, now it's a peaceful oasis. You got it. This was a pizza hut, now 
A Sand County Almanac is one of the classics by a guru of the environmental movement, Aldo Leopold. He believed in the harmony of people and the land. With the help of his family, he spent many years bringing an overworked Wisconsin farm back to its original wildness. The cabin and land are still lovingly tended by his daughter, who lives nearby. this afternoon discussing Earth Day and environmentalism with some kids who were having an Earth Day event on a nearby college campus. We're showing students on campus that there is recyclables that are being thrown away every day. Kind of went over there with the intent to ask what was it that they considered that they do that makes them environmentalists as opposed to what they believe and their answers were interesting and revealing in a kind of way as well. Um, environmentally, I'd say that I pretty much do stuff all year round, recycling, going outside, just in general. I spend more time outside than the average person. I think my career goals alone um, separate me. I'm a political science major, environmental studies minor. I'm going to be going to grad school for uh, environmental advocacy. Probably end up in some sort of politics regarding the environment, lobbying, that sort of stuff. I'm going into outdoor recreation. Just make sure that when I'm outdoors with other people that you know might not be as educated as I am, make sure that they understand why I do certain things, you know, to not tramp around all over outside. I was trying to ask them, well, what makes you an environmentalist now? You know, and it's like, well, I go outside a lot. 85% of Americans consider themselves environmentalists from studies that have been done. If that's the case, then most of these kids have been raised by people who consider themselves environmentalists. This is what I think of how most people see themselves as environmentalists. I love the outdoors. I really do. I love the plants, and I love the animals. Aren't they cute? Except when they eat each other. That's not always so cute. And I love birds. I especially love sunny days. And so I want to say that. And to be an environmentalist means to be outdoors, out in nature. I love having the outdoors be clean. I can't stand litter. 
and I want to recycle. So that makes me a good environmentalist because I do recycle. And on Earth Day, we'll take out the Boy Scout troop or the Girl Scout troop, and we'll all go out on the highway and pick up garbage. Or we'll go for a bike ride, or we'll go canoeing, or we'll go uh, celebrate with our friends in the park. And we'll commute 30 miles each way to work and each way back every day because we got to live out in the country. And so I realized that most people who think of themselves as environmentalists only see that in their outdoor life. They don't connect it to their everyday, work-a-day existence. And the impact of everything that we consume. Right, which includes gas for our cars and steel for our cars, coal to make the steel for our cars, and coal and on and on and on, and coal to uh, power a lot of the electrical plants, so that we can talk to you right now. Lights, water. It comes down to how we live, whether we even compost. You know, do we just throw our scraps in the trash and let it go out too? That's a ton of of waste right there. Waste is a word that should be banished from the language, from all languages, because everything should have its reuse. When I was talking with one of these kids this afternoon, they're talking about all the bottles and cans getting recycled, and I'm thinking, she doesn't even remember returnable bottles. And when I was a kid, that's what we drank our pop out of. It was a returnable bottle. It didn't get recycled. It went back to the store. From the store, it went back to the bottling plant. And at the bottling plant, the bottles got cleaned up and filled with more pop to come back to the store. And that's what recycling should be. But instead, these bottles get produced. They go to the store. They go into a recycling plant. They get melted down. More fuel being consumed. more More stuff burned. In fact, these things are getting shipped hundreds of miles across the state to get melted down. The plastic gets shipped hundreds of miles to go someplace else. And all these tools and all these machinery and all this energy gets consumed to turn that plastic back into another bottle. Where before, we just took the bottle back to the bottling plant and got it filled up with more pop. Right. And that's true even if it's a glass bottle. Right. Even the glass bottles are just getting melted down to be turned into more glass bottles. There's too much obsession with Band-Aid solutions. We've got an environment that's riddled with bullet holes, and we're coming in with little Band-Aids, and that's not going to work. Recycling is a good idea, but it's a Band-Aid solution relative to the massive amounts of consumption that are happening in this world. So we can see that being an environmentalist isn't necessarily easy. We say we want to be an environmentalist, and we have a belief system, and... We want to practice what we believe, and it's not always easy, but start with something and make a conscious effort to practice what you believe, and with time, you will change more and more. This is Earth Day, and we all say, yay, Earth Day, I am an an environmentalist. What is it that you believe that makes you an environmentalist? And everybody will say, oh, I believe in clean water and clean air, and we should do this and we should do that. Most important question, what do you do that makes you an environmentalist? That was the amazing thing, talking with these kids, is when I was asking them, as an environmentalist, how is that going to affect their outlook for the future? And it was like, what job they're going to have? But it's how you live day to day. If you work for environmental causes, but you live 30 miles out in the suburbs and you drive your four-wheel drive vehicle out there and back every day because you got to have a four-wheel drive vehicle so you can get there if it snows, are you still an environmentalist? 
Or are you an environmentalist if you live in the city and ride public transit or ride a bicycle or walk to work every day and don't even own a, a motorized vehicle? Who is the greater environmentalist? Those are the things that really determine whether you are an environmentalist. It's not so much what you believe, it's what you do, it's how you live, it's your overall impact on our planetary life-supporting system. Yes, you can say I've been around, and this is just another college town. But I gotta tell you, there's some mighty dark powers occupying your ivory towers. Marriott's running your lunchroom. Scientists are playing in the labs of doom. They torture little animals who you can't see. They're doing big businesses work for free. So you borrow to pay for those college years You come out in debt up to your ears Just when you thought that you won the battle You come to find out that you're just chattel You did your class and did your class But you never thought it would come to pass You worked real hard for what you get But I got some bad news It's bullshit. Refuse Reduce, reuse, recycle. I mean, refuse, reduce, reuse, recycle is one thing, but it's the refuse and reduce that people forget. Usually even the reuse gets forgotten, like the thing we just talked about with the beverage containers. Nobody thinks reuse, which is what we used to do. Now they just think recycle and they think that they're doing the right things. So when we go shopping, we might want to take our own bags or containers, try to buy in bulk. Try not to pay for packaging. And yeah, just keeping your own containers. Otherwise, you're using another plastic bag for every item that you buy in bulk. The plastic bag is still perfectly fine after you get it home and you've used up the product that's inside the bag. So bring the plastic bag back to the store with you and fill it again. When you see waste, how can we eliminate the waste? What can we do to make the waste not even generated? And if it is generated, how can we reuse it to make something beneficial? Do what you can, do what you must, but just do something to defend the earth. Defend the earth. Do what you can, do what you must, but just do something to defend the earth. Where we live, the local electric utility, a privately owned electric utility, they burn trash in the local power plant. And there's this intuitive thought that, yeah, burning trash to make electricity may not be a bad idea. But as it turns out, that contributes a lot of dioxin to the area. There's a lot of toxic things that turn up in the trash. So burning the trash is not a good idea, at least not on that kind of scale. We have in our city recycling bins, and we can put newspaper and brown paper bags and such in the recycling bins. If the city does not provide enough trash to the utility that has the trash burning plant, the city ends up having to give its recyclables to the trash burning plant. And the trash burning utility has got a great deal. They get paid for taking the trash, and they get paid for the product that they make with the trash, electricity. They don't pay for their raw material like most industries do. But needless to say, because of that incinerator, we cannot recycle our cardboard, which is so easy to recycle, and paper, especially like office paper. The companies here and everywhere go through so much office paper that's just wasted. It's used on one side, and that's it.
We're speaking with Professor Ken Malley. He's a professor of philosophy who teaches within the environmental studies program at the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse. You've been teaching sustainability for how many years now? Oh, gosh. Real sustainability, probably 10, 12. And how would you define sustainability? First, I would say that it's one of those touchy things because the word sustainability has been usurped, I think, by corporate interests. Mm -hmm. And they mean when they say sustainability is when you have resources, you make a product, and you've got somebody to buy them. I think it's useful to be aware that the word is often used that way. But I would use the word sustainability as that you want to maintain the system so they don't get depleted, that they stay with their full power, and don't disturb their self-regulating dynamic for both humans and, of course, non-humans. What kind of systems would those be? Mm, that's a good question. I'm a philosopher. I mean, the systems that I'm talking about are, for example, a wetland system that regulates itself. Or I think of, of Leopold's land ethic. You know, the land, the biotic community is not just plants and animals, but it's plants, animals, soil, and water. Those are the ones that he names. And so if you take soil, water, plants, and animals, and humans, of course, and you put them all in the same basket or the same container and allow each one of them to flourish as they need to flourish in that interactive dynamic, uh, that's what I mean by systems. Let me bounce my definition of sustainability at you, and it's a less academic one and hopefully a more simple one, just the thought that you can't consume resources faster than they can be replenished. I mean, I think that's an, uh, a simpler way to say what I said, because mm -hmm. anytime you have a, a system, all the parts have to function and all the parts have to flourish. And they're going to flourish and function in that interactive, you know. Start with the family, for example. Let's see, six members in that family. That is a self-regulating system. And in order for that system to thrive, it has to be such that all those people are able to flourish in their own right as they interact and are part of the entire, uh, the entire system. You know, you're, you're talking now about maintaining, how did you say it now? Can't use resources faster than they can be replenished. Mm -hmm. And when I say resources, I'm not even talking necessarily minerals and such, but the air, the water. It's the concept that if you're going to put pollution into the atmosphere, you can't put it into the atmosphere at a rate that's faster than the natural system can absorb it and turn it back into clean, usable elements for the rest of nature to use. If you're polluting faster than it can be filtered, you're going to eventually pollute the air to the point that it's just all poison. You can't breathe anymore. Same thing with the water. If you use up the water faster than the natural system of evaporation and rain and so on can replenish the supply of fresh water, never mind salt water, for the oceans, if you're going to consume that faster than it can be replenished, eventually there's going to be no water left. The minerals that we're using for our fuel these days, coal and oil and you know all these dead dinosaur minerals, how many million years has it taken to create those minerals? However many billions of barrels of oil there might be in the world, we're consuming them at a much faster rate than the world creates oil. And that's not sustainable. And building on that, I mean, two thoughts come to my mind. One is David Orr uh, from Oberlin College. You know, he's written several really nice books. And one of the things he says is what we need to learn is to watch natural systems. And everything that we human beings build, every society, every building, every, every system that we build, if we paid attention to the natural systems, then that would teach us when we have to stop.
when we observe natural systems, then we observe how there's this interactive force and things take care of themselves and one part of the system helps the other part of the system and kind of knows, I'm going to even go so far as to say with awareness, knows what that whole shebang needs for its health and wholeness. In this context, if you have to watch natural systems, pay attention. Okay, so again, Leopold says, we're not observing. You know, we're creating experiments in the laboratory, and we stopped observing. He said that 50 years ago. Even 50 years ago, a farmer in Nebraska, I was born and raised in Nebraska, if they didn't pay attention to the season, to the weather, to what was happening in the natural systems, they didn't have any hay. You know, my father used to cultivate corn three or four, you know, three times every season. And if you didn't pay attention to the ground, the soil, the dryness, the climate, the weather, you missed your window. And so you always knew that nature was part of who you were. The cockeyed thing is that you can take a great big tractor that compacts the earth and you can take all the nutrients out of the soil and you can add synthetic fertilizers and synthetic pesticides. And God darn it, you can still get a crop. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think God made a mistake. <laughs> I, think, I think she should have said, okay, this is the limit. You have to maintain these interactive natural systems or else it won't go. Well, so. it's, it's only going to produce to a point. <laughs> and it's a thing that I used to see in California is all these flat pieces of ground. They just pump it and pump it and pump it, get everything out of the soil that they can until it's completely depleted. Then once it's depleted, cover it with cookie cutter houses. Yeah. That won't sustain because you keep putting those cookie cutter houses in and there's no place to grow the food and people still have to eat. So on a level of 1 to 10, where's your optimism? Hope, hope, not optimism. Hope, yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Long term, and when I say long term, I think I'm talking in thousands of year cycles. I think there is, I'd say it's 50-50. I think we're right on the brink. And I think if we do it right, a thousand years from now, people are going to look back at this time in history and know that we were right on the brink and that if we hadn't done this radical thing, whatever it is we end up doing, and turn it around, that we were headed to the abyss and we would have gone to the abyss. But you think it's possible. I think it's quite possible. I think it's, po- I mean, I think it's possible we can pull it off. I think you can look out there and see all the signs of destruction mm-hmm. and say it ain't going to happen. We're not yeah. going to pull this off. And I think enough people know that it's not working, but they just need to have the viability of the alternative demonstrated to them. 
once again, David Orr has written this essay saying, it's not simply that we don't, we don't have the level of consciousness. He says, the people who have the power really have so much power. So let's say we all got aware there's so much power to confront. And I'm not talking yeah. about the administration. I'm talking about corporate power. I'm talking right. about global disconnect from where our livelihood really comes from, and that's right. water and soil and earth mm-hmm. and air. And when you said those words of the power, all I could think of was the economic disparity, that, yeah, it's not the, the administration or the regime that's holding the seats of government, but it's this, these, these corporate behemoths that, because they control all the money, they control all the resources, and they control everybody else's and lives. And unfortunately, they're not governments, so they don't even have the, the, the checks and balances that governments have. No. You know, the, the, to whatever extent the checks and balances work in government, right. corporations don't even have those. sit here you and rosie sit here and you know probably some days it feels not much is taking effect from but the benefit is still there because there's some people know and they may be in minneapolis they may be in denver Mm -hmm. but they always know the witnessing that you've done and it does make a difference i'm very optimistic i mean i I don't. I have no real basis for it (laughs) the number of people that feel this way is a cause for optimism yes yes Yes. For instance, the last American election, the result did not feel right relative to the mood of the public at the time. Our friend Guy Wolf appeared at my office door the day after the election with the same smile of optimism and hope that he had the day before. Huh. And it was, it was pretty amazing. You know, he said, well, this is what we got to do in the long haul, in the long run. Right. Uh, you know, it can be done. I don't have to give up my joy, is mm-hmm. another thing. We need to do something different. We need to make systems be different. But we don't have to give up the joy. You know, we, I can sit here and mope because things aren't going well, but I can also do. I can do, exactly. I can do this, whatever's mine to do. I can get up and do something. That's to be proactive rather than to be a victim. Rather than to sit there and become, say, I'm paralyzed because the thing is terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's happening right now in the United States, I think, is terrible. It's one of the more terrible things that has been happening right. on the planet. It's so terrible that I can understand somebody saying, oh, I can't do anything. I sit here. You know, I, it's so bad mm-hmm. that I feel paralyzed. You know, Joanna Macy's thing about the great turning, are you acquainted with that? She says it's a very um, dynamic time to be alive because not so many generations have this opportunity where everything is crumbling, mm-hmm. all systems are crumbling, and something new is going to emerge. So she says the first thing we need to do is stop the devastation. The institutions that are destroying, they have to be stopped somehow. Then we have to find new institutions. And then we've got to change our mind, change, get a new focus. And I guess you know I've come back to that a couple times today, but to think differently about how we're on the planet. Once again, I'm a philosopher, so you have to forgive me.
How's retirement going to be for you? You going to put this on tape too? Sure. I'm looking forward to it. Practical level, I'm, I have a contract to teach a couple of courses at the University of Toronto on hmm. environmental ethics. But I'm also looking forward to, um, to doing something a little different, have a different yeah. pace of life. I've got some ideas for writing in my head. Because you told us once that you're always learning, you know, and I just couldn't <laughs> picture you as somebody that sees retirement as just lying um, in your easy chair and uh, playing with your model trains and I think or one whatever. Of the biggest mistakes that this culture has, and where I don't, I wouldn't even blame the government for this one, but mm -hmm. maybe, and that is the idea that you work until you retire and then your life is over. Yeah, you know, I mean, of course, not everybody says it, but that it, it seeps in that little silver yeah. dust of that attitude it seeps in even though you don't want it to seep in and so as soon as you're not getting up every morning and going to work or going to school you're in quote retirement then you're waiting to die i think that's one of the most asinine uh, ideas and pff, no i yeah. i will do things differently i mean of course college professors have it pretty easy anyway you know they you got, get good retirements <laughs> And so you're supposed to ask me, will I miss lacrosse? Will I miss will my you, students? Will, will I miss you, my teaching? <laughs> will you miss any of this? Oh, I will miss it, but I not in any nostalgic sense. I don't see any point in, in well, it's just not me. Why should you waste your energy all over what might have been or what used to be? Because everything is fresh. Right. And it always moves forward. So Some people tell me I'm supposed to miss you know, what I've done here, but... I'll bet you really missed the bureaucratic BS that... that oh, I will miss that in the biggest, biggest, biggest way. Yeah, I just, <laughs> Those meetings when nobody knows what they're talking about and they think they do, you know. Yeah, I'll miss those. sing their songs in the wind lyrics and melodies for the spirit senses songs of laughter and life timeless things in timeless places do not be afraid to be strong do not be afraid to love but always remember always remember love wisely the love of being free of possession the love of being beyond desire. The love of being respect for Mother Earth. Listen as the trees sing their songs. In the wind, lyrics and melodies for the spirit senses, songs of laughter and life, timeless things in timeless places. Do not be afraid. Remember the medicine is in the time. Live this life to last, 
Join the time of tomorrow and the past. Be like us. Serve the creation. We will endure. Listen as the trees sing their songs. Listen. Listen. So what can we each do to help the Earth this Earth Day and beyond? One thing we must do is to do everything that we can to resist the forces that are responsible for a lot of the destruction of the environment. And right now, the world is controlled by the captains of corporate capitalism. They preach the value of a free market, but only when it works to their advantage. These are people who think things like water and health care should go to the highest bidder, while our jobs should go to the lowest bidder. They have consolidated the wealth of the world into their little clique while impoverishing everyone else. The corporate empire cannot operate if we don't feed it. Their economy depends on armies of faithful drones pulling out their credit cards to buy all kinds of corporate crap that nobody really needs. The international corporate captains have no power without our support. We must withhold our support. We don't need to feed their machine. We don't need their crap. As far as the things that we need, let's try to produce them ourselves. Keep our money in our own communities. It may cost a few extra pennies once in a while, but our dollars will stay close to home instead of getting loaded onto a boat for China. Let's grow and store as much of our own food as possible and get the rest from our neighbors through farmers markets and community-supported agriculture. Let's abandon the corporate supermarkets and go to buying clubs and food co-ops instead. Let's try to reduce our consumption and not let anything useful go to waste. Let's shop at garage sales, thrift stores, second-hand stores, flea markets, and household auctions. Let's take the time to peek into dumpsters and junk piles, and let's feel no shame in reclaiming anything useful we find there. Many useful things are discarded because of a minor flaw that can be easily fixed by someone who knows how. So let's learn how to fix things to keep them from being wasted. Let's each of us find our own specialty in which to apply our reclamation skills. Let's also find creative new uses for all the junk we just keep having to throw away. Let's try to stay away from the corporate chains and seek out the privately owned mom and pop places instead. A lot of energy is consumed in the transportation of food and other merchandise. So let's read labels and seek out products that are produced close to home. Let us support our neighbors who struggle to produce the things that we need. Did you ever notice that the most addictive drugs are the ones that are legal and monopolized by the corporate empire? It is best to avoid becoming addicted to the poisons produced by the corporate drug pushers, the purveyors of alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceuticals. Dependence is slavery. I see too many activists spending too much money on corporate cigarettes and corporate beer. If you're going to smoke cigarettes, how about growing your own tobacco? If we're going to drink beer, 
Let's make our own beer and wine. Every drop of gasoline we buy contributes to pollution, exploitation, and war. So let's not buy it anymore. Let's live where walking, bicycling, or public transit can get us anywhere we need to be. Once we don't need our cars anymore, we can recycle them. Everything we do with motors. Let's see if we can find a way to do it without motors. For those things that can't be done without motors, let's insist on motors that run on renewable fuels and renewable power sources. Let's keep our money out of their financial system. Let's pull out of the banks and join credit unions. Let's try to conduct as much of our business as possible in cash. Let's use checks drawn on our credit union accounts only in a pinch. Credit cards should only be used as a last resort. Even if we never carry a month-to-month balance, the credit card corporations keep from the merchants a little piece of every transaction. They also collect information on our buying habits, and they log our whereabouts. They don't deserve our money, and how we spend it is none of their business. We don't have to put up with having lies and corporate propaganda transmitted on our public airwaves. Let's keep track of who's buying ad time from the most flagrant liars and propagandists, then boycott those people. Of course, this would mean that some poor soul would have to monitor this crap, but there may already be organizations doing this heroic work, and if there are, we'd love to hear about it. Speaking of advertising, let's be careful to shield ourselves from its brainwashing effects. While the commercials and adverts are on, let's not only use the mute button or the fast forward, but let's shift our gaze from the screen toward each other. Because they're sly people. They know how to make their message get through even when we try to avoid it. When corporate names are pinned onto stadiums and other buildings, let's not use those names. Let's resist the encroachment of corporate icons into our psyche by referring to them by new fun names, such as McCrap, Booger King, and Mallfart. Let's embrace barter and other aspects of the underground economy. Let's learn to live on a lower income, which lowers our tax burden to the corporate empire. Let's find ethical means of self-employment or build our own collectively owned and operated enterprises so we can gain more control over our work lives. And let's make sure people are paid a decent wage. Otherwise, how can businesses expect people to have any money to buy their stuff? When we spend our money, let's support businesses that treat their workers fairly and boycott those that don't. Let's embrace collective principles represented by the image of an old-fashioned barn raising. Imagine the neighborhood getting together to raise a barn for a local farmer, sharing not only a day of work focused on a clear and tangible goal, but also a day of festivity and camaraderie. Such a day not only builds a barn, it builds community. So let's strengthen our families, our extended families, our circles of friends, and our communities. We need each other as networks of mutual support. By working together to build strong, cohesive, and autonomous communities, we can starve the corporate beast. My name is Abby. And you're listening to A Different Reality from Purple Earth. Before we get into the feedback for the week, we want to apologize for some of last week's music that came in jarringly loud after the talk segments. 
Professionally, that's called maintaining consistent levels. Now, we're a little bit new at this, and it's something we know we'll get better at, but you'll just have to bear with us for a little while while we get better at it. Once again, we're sorry if anybody else's ears got the sudden jolt that ours did. Onward! A friend was listening to our report from the Pearly Gates, and he said, Very good. Very good indeed. Here's a message that we got from a listener in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Heidi ho neighbors. I just got done listening to show number 503 and took your request for feedback seriously. So, um, I really like the interviews and, again, the music a lot. I have also listened each week because I dig that it's produced not just in my town, but on my block. Talk about community radio. Last week, we did a little whinging about our show not getting any feedback, and right after we did that whinging, we got this message, and the message was sent to us right before the show was actually online. Just thought I'd drop you a line to say how much I've enjoyed your last two podcasts. I've only been listening to podcasts for a couple of weeks, and yours was one of the first I found when I searched for casts about the environment. I live near Belfast in Northern Ireland and work with a group called Streetwise Community Circus. I cycle a lot as well and would love to hear you do a show about bikes. I now have a trailer bike as well as a child seat for bringing my two kids to school, and the kids love it. Other parents always smile and comment on how much fun it looks, but I don't see them getting out of their SUVs and giving it a try. Well, if you keep listening to a different reality, you're going to hear a lot about bikes. Um, We sold our little pickup truck about a year ago, and we haven't missed it at all. Now, what we do miss is those payments for insurance and registration and maintenance for a machine that just sat in our driveway all the time. Not. We're kindred spirits on this issue, and we actually are working on a segment on being car-free, and we hope to have it ready soon, maybe as early as next week. Belfast has started to improve food-wise. We now have a weekly farmer's market and a food co-op that has been running for the last few years. I really want to start growing my own, and your show has given me the inspiration to grow a few more things besides herbs and shoots. Wow! We made a difference! That's so cool! Now, as for the rest of you, we know you're out there. We're starting to notice some of you coming back each week, and that gives us encouragement. Keep those messages of encouragement coming, because when you just started doing a show like this, you need all the encouragement you can get. So thank you for listening and continuing to listen. And for telling all of your friends about a different reality.
different reality is created, produced, edited, and assembled by Abby Z and Rosie of Purple Earth. You can contact us through our website at www.purpleearth.net. If you like the music you hear on this show, thank Rosie, our music director. This week's playlist is on our website. I may be the music director, but Abby's the engineer. Thanks, Abby. We encourage you to go to your favorite locally owned independent record store to check out this music. We have finally been approved to provide links to a popular music download service where you can buy some of the music heard on this show. We also plan to start adding links to the home websites of artists you hear on a different reality. Keep an eye on our website at www.purpleearth.net for these links to start lighting up. The music you heard this week was... Our theme song, Lovers of Light, from Afro-Celt Sound System and Arborescence from Osric Tentacles. When the Music's Over by The Doors and Big Yellow Taxi from Joni Mitchell. From Shriekback, we heard Signs and Nothing But Flowers from Talking Heads. Skin Up by Medicine Drum and Wally Badaru doing Ayers Rock Bubble Eyes. Indentured Class from Robert Hoyt and Alice de Missel doing Defend the Earth. Outland by Cyber Tribe and Origins from Glenn Velez. Then we heard Planet Drum doing Dance of the Hunter's Fire and Oh Yeah from Los Lobos. Turbo Tabla did Yashadil Alhan and Eric Casillas did Road Opener. In Every Part of the Forest from Grammy Award-winning Bill Miller and Song of the Trees by John Trudell. And Bill Miller with Canyon Dance and Lost Tribes by Joe Zawinol and the Zawinol Syndicate. Did I pronounce that right? Zawinol. Zawinol. Apologies if that's been mispronounced. Next week on A Different Reality, we follow up on this week's Earth Day episode. We'll have reports from the rallies, the bike parades, the outdoor concerts, speeches, and other events. And we'll keep trying to figure out what we can do collectively and individually to make a meaningful difference. Our post-mortem review of Earth Day 2005 next week on A Different Reality. Can you turn the birds down? Broadcasting from Purple Earth. (laughs) 